Natural physics is a concept astrophysicist Leroy Larry developed that explains in down-to-earth scenarios how the principles of physics could have come about from observing nature. Each episode begins with a scenario, followed by an example to illustrate the application of these principles in futuristic research at the frontiers of science, such as Leroy's astrophysics doctoral research at Cinespa, Center for Space Research, and then concludes with an exploration of how these same principles could have very well been used by ancient cultures and civilizations. Mathematics is naturally encountered and incorporated as the exciting and fun tool of science that it is. Science is the window into our amazing world of nature, and mathematics is the tool to open that window. Natural physics encompasses current, futuristic, and ancient physics, and ties them together by the principles of physics that are common threads running throughout each. Greetings, I'm Leroy Larry and welcome to Natural Physics, live from Costa Rica. The first thing I would like to do is do a go back uh, to last episode. Mariela Bonilla was our guest, one of our guests, and uh, she made the comment about how a lot of women authors have had to write under a, 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 an anonymous name, right? that could be uh, construed as male in order to get their material published. Ridiculous, right? And she gave the example of the woman who wrote Harry Potter. And I had read or I had heard that this woman uh, began writing on napkins, right? Uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe in a coffee shop or something, but to submit her work, evidently she had to go under uh, a name other than her full name. How how utterly ridiculous, right? And um, so I wanted to to touch on that because right when Mariella was saying that, my brother-in-law Damien came in and and it was his birthday party <laughs> basically. Uh, and uh, my wife Tirza, her his big sister, she was with us as well. It was a great show. It was a lot of fun. Um, now, I, I wanted to uh, share with you some information that the individual uh, who, I've, who I met, who's at the National Museum of Costa Rica, um, and hopefully he will be able to be on the show uh, live because uh, oh, he has so much excellent information about the Barucas. He's a graphic design artist. Uh, again, I hope I hope I can let him introduce himself. So I'll just tell you a little bit of the information that he gave me, very valuable information. Um, he told me that being a graphic design artist at the museum, he's involved in a lot of different projects. He interacts with the archaeologists, for example, the head archaeologist that's in charge of uh, the archaeological sites of the spheres. And... Uh, and with uh, respect to the Baruca, uh, you remember we were planning to be present for the inauguration of their museum, the Baruca Indigenous Community Museum on December the 15th. 
Well, thanks to this individual, I learned that uh, it may not be December the 15th. It's, uh, it, they're still, they're getting it together. There's a lot of things to pull in. I don't know if you remember the picture of the beautiful sphere that is located in the sphere, in, in the museum. I mean, beautiful, right? So they had to, they had to transport that to the museum and that involved a lot of logistics. Remember I talked last season about how were these spheres, how, how were they transported? How was the raw material transported through the dense jungle, uh, jungle of, of the Deke Delta? I'm gonna keep my mouth lubricated, okay. Um, and, and, and again, Tears and I saw firsthand, we saw the land, we felt the energy, we met the people. Oh, it was, it was beyond cool. It was just so cool. Um, and so uh, the museum, now I've seen pictures of, of it the way it was before the renovation and the way it is now. You've seen pictures of the way it is now. Uh, it, it's beautiful. And the previous pictures aren't that bad either, but it's definitely a change, right? So they're getting it together to open the doors to the public and, and show off their new indigenous community museum. Now, this individual also told me that there's an organization in the museum that goes to all the different indigenous groups within Costa Rica and helps them to develop a museum. And they're given the choice of either wanting the museum to be more for their community or for outsiders, for tourism, okay? Very straightforward choice to make, right? Is it for your people or do you wanna make it so that you invite other people to check out your culture? So the Barucas, can you guess which one they picked? <laughs> the first one. They picked to have their museum structured for the young people so that their culture is not lost. Their music, their food, not just, it's just not about the spheres, though they are a huge part of it, but every, everyday life, they don't want the young people to lose touch with their culture, with their heritage. We all want that, right? For our young people. We don't want them to forget. What did Bob Marley say? You got to know where you come from to know where you're gonna go, right? Okay? Yeah, so that's what they picked. So this museum, when it opens up, is gonna be geared to getting the young people back into their culture, to dig in their culture. Remember last season, we found out from Mariella Bonilla that once technology and, and everything came into the picture, the kids stopped being interested in listening to the elders, right? Hey, young people are young people no matter where you are, Costa Rica, United States, Europe, Asia, the Baduca village, okay? So, um, they used to gather and listen to the elders and they stopped doing that because of technology. So this museum is such a grand endeavor to try to help keep their culture, keep their tradition. 
And what's so cool is that this organization within the museum, they go to other indigenous communities, other indigenous tribes within Costa Rica. So can you feel my excitement? First, the Baducas, and then there's the high, high, very possibility, very high possibility that I will be able to go to the other indigenous communities, right? This is gonna be an ongoing project. The Natural Physics Show, communicating with the indigenous peoples of Costa Rica. And on that note, this individual told me that the women elders of the Baruca community are very much looking forward to talking with me. Remember we sent them a video, kind of a summary of season one and it was subtitled in Spanish. Well, I guess they looked at it or at least a little bit of it and they saw enough where they say, yeah, we'll talk to this dude, <laughs> right? So I have, you know, I'm beyond excited, right? They're ready to talk to me. So it's gonna happen, everybody. It's gonna happen. I'm gonna get to talk to the elders of the Barucas, right? And now you've seen the presentation and the question and questions and answers from Nigeria. So you got an idea of how I'm gonna step to them. And from what I was told by this individual at the museum, it's gonna be free and clear. I mean, just a, a great exchange of knowledge, right? And, and by the way, do you remember the individual that I showed who we met when we went, when we went down to Palma Sur and he had the coconut stand in the curve in the road that you take from Palma Sur to the museum, right? And, and across the road was that field with cows in the pasture next door. And, and the field had broken artifacts. Remember the sphere that had the top one third sheared off? So you got the, the sheared off part laying on the ground next to it, to the rest of it. And there's other uh, rocks in the area, artifacts. And, and the one deal that, that to me looked like it could have been the, the, the sculpture of an angel. And, um, and this individual's house, by the way, is behind the coconut stand. And, and, and not long after Tears and I got back home here in Wachipilin, he what's up me and he introduced me to his wife on what's up, right? Now get this, okay. I showed the individual at the museum the picture that I took of that field and he knew what it was. He said, oh yeah, that's from Fanca Quattro. Now remember, Fanca means farm. Uh, the two aligned spheres, east and west, and the video of Tears and I, that was from Farm 6, Fanca 6, real famous one. But there's other sites and Farm 4 is, is another one. So this person at the museum, as soon as I showed him the picture, he said, oh yeah, that's uh, artifacts from Farm 4. And what's so cool, everybody, is that the museum keeps track of all the different, as much as, as possible, they keep track of all the spheres. 
and the, and the fragments of spheres. So he totally knew about this field with the, the sheared off uh, sphere, the upper third, and they, they, uh, they categorize it. They keep track of all of this. Now, this is what's really cool. He had never met the individual at the coconut stand, Ogre. Remember, I showed you a picture of me and him. So here, and remember I said it would be a great endeavor to, and remember Ogre said that he wanted to help put that sphere back together, right? I mean, even though he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Spanish, we, we still were able to communicate enough to know what he wanted. You have an individual, the key Delta area, Palma Sur, South Costa Rica, coconut stand house behind the coconut stand right and what does he want to do he wants to put this sphere back together how cool is that so now that i know that the museum keeps track of all the different errant spheres you know i want to use that word um i can put this individual in touch with ogre there we go solve that equation right put Ogre in touch with that department of the National Museum of Costa Rica that is in charge of keeping track of where all the spheres are and the fragments of spheres. And you remember I talked about the sophisticated method that they use to put spheres back together? So I'll get them together. I will get Ogre together with this individual. And again, the reason why I'm not calling his name is because hopefully he will be able to be on the show and introduce himself. Okay. So, and you remember I said that there, there is internet connection at the museum. So when the time comes where I can meet these women elders of the Baruca community, and we just have a dialogue and we talk, hey, is, that's, that's actually, that's, that's like outreach, don't you think? I mean, uh, in two directions. Oops, I hit the mic in two directions, right? My plan is to tell them about the current knowledge of astronomy, what, what is basically accepted in what you would call academia <laughs> concerning astronomy, and then get their take on that, and then talk about the spheres. So it is gonna be a space education and outreach event, activity. Now, I've never considered myself a teacher. My mother was a teacher. And um, I've always considered myself a teacher's helper, uh, supplementing what they teach in their classrooms. It, it was such an honor for me to go to Nigeria and uh, be able to give those astronomy presentations to those primary and secondary school teachers in Nigeria. And by the way, <laughs> Okay, I don't know how many people are aware of the terrible uh, occurrences that have been going on in northern Nigeria. Uh, there's a, a terrorist group that kidnaps school children, young girls. Okay, do I do I even need to go any further with that? Okay, uh, terrible, and. Um, and where I was at in Nigeria was uh, southern Nigeria, Ando State. And 
after the workshop had concluded, one of the teachers approached me and asked me, and I, he was serious. And either he was really good at downplaying what was going on, or he just didn't give it a lot of uh, recognition, but he approached me to see if I'd be interested in going up to Northern Nigeria to give us a similar, give similar talks on astronomy. <laughs> and this is what he said, I, and I don't mean to laugh because it's not funny, actually, not at all. So I, I guess I'm just kind of laughing because he said it so nonchalantly. Okay, he, he walks up to me and uh, he said, after he uh, says, would you like to come up to Northern Nigeria? He, he then proceeds to say, uh, I know we have our problems, but uh, yeah, yeah, like, I know we got our problems. Yeah, school children getting kidnapped, school girls being assaulted. Uh, yeah, I would say there's problems up north. So um, when I told uh, Tirza about that, <laughs> you can imagine her, her response. But I, I, I'm just, I actually appreciated the fact that he asked me if I'd be willing to come up there, right? Yeah. So, um, okay. Now, again, I've never considered myself a teacher. I think within the last year and a half, I think we've all, those, those who didn't know, I think we've all got a new appreciation of teachers, right? They don't only teach our children, they're babysitters, they're psychologists, they're psychiatrists, they're social workers, okay? Teachers wear a whole lot of more hats than just teaching. I hope the world learned that when what hit us hit us last year, right? Where kids were forced to stay at home and parents around the world found out how invaluable teachers are. And isn't, isn't it just a sheer tragic irony that what they're paid is nothing compared to what they should be paid for the job that they do? There's a whole lot of occupations I can think of where it would be very fair play to switch the salaries. <laughs> I'm not gonna go into it, but I think you all will agree with me. Teachers are indispensable. They deserve the respect that goes with that. Okay, so um, the video I'm gonna show, um, starts out with a little interview that all-knowing, all-seeing Ray did uh, when he came down here to Costa Rica. And you remember me last season talking about how uh, we, we filmed the monologues that were in season one, episode one, right? That half hour. Uh, but we also did some other things. And this interview is one of, is one of the things we did. And I talk about uh, teachers and my mother. And then following that, do you remember I showed a picture of me with one of the uh, student teachers in Nigeria? And I said that I was gonna be talking more about him. Okay, 
His name is Isaac Akin Alami Goke. And we've kept in touch since that workshop in 2016. And I would never consider myself a mentor for anybody. And it, it's a grand honor for me when somebody uh, steps to me as such, okay? I, I wanna say, you sure you know what you're doing? <laughs> Having me as a mentor? Uh, but we've kept in touch. And uh, right after the workshop in 2016, he sent me a video that he made, his own space education and outreach video from Nigeria, right? And then this year, I had the opportunity to give a presentation with him along with my colleague, Bruce Callow. You may remember him from season one, co-author of the book, To the Stars, Costa Ricans at NASA, him and his wife, Ana Luisa, they uh, wrote this book and they do other uh, books as well, other educational resource materials. Uh, but the three of us, we gave a, a virtual presentation at the Space Exploration Educators Conference, which is normally held annually in Houston, Texas. Okay. But as you might expect, because of what's been going on within the last year and a half, it was held virtually. So uh, Isaac made a video for that as well. That's going to play. And you can see his maturity, right? From the first video five years ago to this year. And let me just tell you one thing real quick. There was an astronomy uh, contest that he wanted to enter. Oh, his dream is to work at NASA. And part of outreach is to help individuals like Isaac. And remember Ada Byron Lovelace? There's a lot of Adas and Isaacs out there, right? Outreach is to help them fulfill their dreams. And, and so um, his dream is to work at NASA. And, and so uh, my endeavor and Bruce Callow is to help him get to NASA. He's such a great kid. So you're going to see the maturity in him from the first video to the second video and again, oh, so what I was gonna say was, there was a contest, an astronomy contest he wanted to enter. And he emailed me about it and he gave me some sample uh, problems that they give the contestants, I guess the practice, right? To kind of get ready for the uh, contest, for the test. And, and so he made it through the first phase, but then the second phase, they, I guess they wanted a fee and he just thought it was too expensive. Uh, remember he's in Nigeria. Okay. Ando state. And he thought it was just too expensive. You want to know how much that fee was eight United States dollars, huh? Eight United States dollars. And actually, I mean, in grad school, I, I remember the days where you didn't have a lot to spare seriously. So, I can, I can understand where he was coming from. Needless to say, I was more than happy to, to have the honor of helping him with that fee, right? 
and he entered it. He did well. And then there was one more phase, which was rough. These, these astronomy contests are kind of sketchy. I mean, they start out with some fairly easy stuff like uh, what's the difference or how many eclipses are there, right? Kind of stuff like that. But when you get to that third phase, okay, you have a rocket that leaves the Earth and goes to the moon. And as it passes the Lagrange point where the gravitational force is, oh, they, they, they kind of do a little whirly world there. They, they, they make a big quantum jump in the difficulty. Uh, but he enjoyed it and he did well. So that's going to be the next video. And then after that, there's a series of pictures that I'm going to talk through as we go through them. And they basically just show where, again, even though I've never considered myself a teacher, I've taught from time to time. And uh, here in Costa Rica, before I went to the University of Costa Rica, uh, I actually taught at two uh, secondary schools, uh, bilingual uh, high schools, right? Where English is the language that is uh, spoken in the classroom. The whole idea, parents would, they send their kids here in Costa Rica to those kind of schools to give them a leg up, right? So that they learn English, so that when they go abroad to university or what have you, they have that added advantage of, of being able to speak English. The public schools here, all Spanish. In fact, the University of Costa Rica is all Spanish. And I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Actually, I'll just say now. Okay, so when, and actually this is good for me to say this as an introduction to the video. Okay, so again, both schools, you speak English. So I taught high school math and science. And I mean, the math was everything from seventh grade math, algebra, geometry, pre-calculus. Uh, I, think I, I think I got them all. And the science was earth sciences, life sciences, <laughs> biology. Oh, back to the math, let me not forget. Trig, I also taught algebra, algebra two trig, right? I mean, they had me, they had me teaching about every possible thing you could from the seventh grade up, mathematics, mathematics wise and science wise. Yeah, you had life, earth, sciences, and chemistry and physics. And I taught all of that. Uh, and you know the funny thing I gotta add real quick. In teaching the chemistry class, I still had my chemistry book from high school. <laughs> And actually, my, my chemistry book from high school is so old that the, the table of elements, they had, my table has some missing ones that have been discovered since I was in high school. Woo! That puts a time stamp on me, doesn't it? But anyway, I taught at these two high schools before I went to the University of Costa Rica. And, um, and, and uh, when I got to the university, Again, I'm tooling along thinking, oh, it's going to be English just like these two high schools, right? No, that's the that's the national, uh, that's the University of Costa Rica, right? So, of course, Spanish would be the spoken language. And needless to say, I got real familiar with Google Translate 
that very first semester I taught. But this is the cool thing, everybody. And you'll see the pictures of my classes as I roll this video, as we roll this video. But the, the first class I had, the second week, they took a vote and they decided that they wanted me to teach them in English. What a lucky break for me, right? They wanted to learn English while they were learning physics, huh? So it was presented to the physics department. Uh, they gave two stipulations. One was that I let everybody in the class know that the class was gonna be taught in English to give those who wanted to leave that opportunity. Because some of these kids come from rural areas. I totally understand where when they all of a sudden hear that this class is gonna be taught in English, oh, they're out of there, right? But that first semester, only I think only two students left. And they were, they were so apologetic to me. I said, no, hey, you gotta look out for yourself. Hey, you, hey, this is something new. This is a curveball coming in from left field, right? No worries. Transfer to another class. It's all good, right? It's all good. So, and the second stipulation by the physics department was if that first semester was not success, uh, successful, game over. Well, it was very successful. The word got around that there was a physics class being offered in English. It was stipulated that in the course directory of the physics department and students started signing up on purpose to be in my class to be taught physics in English. Huh? How cool is that? Okay. So, uh, let's start that video and, uh, please enjoy and okie dokie. Okay. Okay, 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 um, okay. At a very early stage, I knew I wanted to be some type of scientist. And I used to dig in my backyard in Omaha, Nebraska, and dig up tree roots and imagine that they were dinosaur bones or pterodactyl claws. And, and, uh, and the high school that I went to, my senior year of high school, they offered physics for the very, very first time. And in addition to being interested in dinosaurs and archeology span at a young age, I was always interested in outer space. And so astronomy was part of that class. And that's when I discovered that of all the sciences, for me, physics was the most interesting. And that propelled me into deciding to major in physics in college. Mamie Lois Curtis, uh, she would have been 93 years old today, yes. So that played a part in uh, being a teacher, her being a teacher. That's who I, when I think of a teacher, that's a teacher. I've been called a teacher, but I've never considered myself a, a teacher uh, I mean, I, I've always considered myself to be in a role as assisting teachers with my, uh, the way I present physics and math, but teachers like my mother 
hey, that the world is sore. And I've met young ones, schools that I've been at, young, dedicated people, both in the United States and here. And you just thank the universe. You just, you were, we're so lucky to have people like that who are battling in the trenches with no support, if hardly any support financially and, and doing the best they can to educate the children, which are the future. They're the future. So, uh, so again, my thoughts of her on this day and my father and our family and how I grew up and how I first got interested in science in, in their nurturing energy. And again, neither one of them were the most emotional people. Uh, hey, this could be just another part of how I got my degree. Uh, <laughs> my folks grew up old school. My father in Crowley, Louisiana, my, my mother in Alton, Illinois. This is Isaac, everybody. Isaac Akina Lamigoke. <laughs> cool kid. What do you know about space? It's empty, right? Well, it's not. Space consists of an energy intrinsic to it, and this energy scientists call it dark energy. It appears to exert a force that causes everything in space, even space itself, to expand. The universe, as we all know, consists of planets, galaxies, and stars, but it also consists of an exotic particle called dark matter. Scientists don't really know what dark matter is, but it appears to exert a gravitational force that keeps everything in the universe in balance. The universe, as we all know, would end one day, probably in the big rip or in the big crunch. But till then, I want you to eat, sleep, and enjoy the wonders of the universe. Thank you. Good day, everyone. I'm Isaac Akion Lamgoke. First of all, I must say I'm so honored to be a part of the Space Exploration Education Conference. I've been a lover of space right from when I was very small, and this led me to read a lot about space. And in my school, I was privileged to be um, a part of one of the only two schools in Nigeria that have a space club. So I joined the space club right from 100 level. And in 500 level, I was elected the vice president of the Futa Space Club. That's the Federal University of Technology, Akure. And while in 200 level, I was a volunteer for the astronomy for, um, for the astronomy for teachers workshop, in which uh, we taught, in which the facilitator, Mr. Larry Leroy, taught a group of teachers from different schools about astronomy. And subsequently, we were invited by some of those schools to teach their students about astronomy. And not only that, we as a space club organized some seminars in which we invited these students um, to teach them about space. And they were so excited to learn about space and they had lots of questions about space. Not only that, I have also written a paper on communicating astronomy to the public, environment, culture, and peace. It's about it's a paper that talks about the, the unity and the strength 
that we as a race would derive from communicating astronomy to ourselves and i personally love communicating astronomy this earned me a nickname i got in the department that's space boy because i love to tell everybody and anyone about me space uh, boy so tell any everybody and anyone around me about space tell them about astronomy to explain some of the concepts of the earth and concepts of the world that seems alien to some people to tell them how astronomy helps us in this area and um so honored again to be in this conference and i'm here to learn and also to render my knowledge as as when due um thank you everyone for having me in this conference have a nice time i don't even need to say anything that do i okay the sphere my sphere okay this was on the field trip at the end of the semester at the high school when I saw the sphere, Tirza took the picture of me with it. I immediately wanted a picture of it. One of my favorite pictures. This is the logo for SINESPA, the Center for Space Research, which is located on the campus of the University of Costa Rica, where I was doing my research. This is a picture of me. I gave a presentation to the physics department and SINESPA about my background. Okay, I'll get to that later. First day of class, everybody. August 2014, March 2014, actually. First day of class, my physics class in English. This is my first semester class. This is the class that voted that I teach in English, right? Saved me. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. So these pictures are from my four semesters of teaching English, teaching physics in English at the University of Costa Rica. And I wasn't aware of it at the time, but evidently I was the first person to ever teach physics in English in the history of the University of Costa Rica. First ever, okay? <laughs> I sure didn't know that at the time. One of the students told me that he thought that was the case, and then I found out later it definitely was the case. Great kids, great kids. I mean, such a joy, such a pleasure to get to know such individuals. Oh, my goodness. It was so much fun. It was, it, it was just unbelievable. It was, it, it, and, and I used, and I tell them little jokes from uh, Western. Uh, I'll try to think of one like watching grass grow, right? Meaning it's gonna take a long time for us to get results from this experiment. Things like that, right? Teaching them not only English, but giving them a little lick, look into uh, slang, right? Everyday on the street English slang in the United States. They really enjoyed that. They totally enjoyed that. <laughs> I mean, can't you feel the energy, how much fun we had? Oh, it was great. Four semesters two years at the University of Costa Rica. This is the poster from my very first uh, presentation at the Planetarium of Costa Rica, okay? Which is located on the campus of the University of Costa Rica. This is the program from my second presentation. And actually everybody, season one, episode one, 
that that half hour it shows parts from both planetarium presentations okay and these are these right here are pictures uh from that evening at the planetarium okay so you can see it was around the holidays this was november of 2015 six years ago six years ago okay some pictures of the audience it was so much fun and i gave these presentations in english both okay and just what's so cool is because of the way i give the presentation and the pictures i use everybody got the drift of what i was well now a lot of a lot of the audience spoke english as a second language but spanish is their first language but they still understood what i was talking about okay and i got a lot of great questions afterwards just like i got in nigeria this is me with franklin chang diaz he's a national hero in costa rica holds the record for space shuttle uh flights this is me at the united nations in vienna austria representing costa rica in the role of advisor on space education and outreach given my presentation here i'm at the international astronomical federation astronautical federation in washington dc in 2019 and if because of covid we weren't able to do this but this is what we were gonna we had planned for costa rica in may of 2020 i'll tell you more about that in a bit okay and you see that both announcements are in English and Spanish. And, and the program at a glance, both are in English and Spanish because I had to guarantee the, uh, the perfecter of, of Escazú that Spanish, it would be in Spanish as well, right? Because, hey, Spanish is the language of Costa Rica. So I had to definitely take care of that. This is the conference I told you about that Isaac, Bruce Callow, and myself, we were co-presenters at. Uh, it was back in February. This is my business card, everybody, okay? Which, if I could, I would personally give it to each and every one of you listeners and viewers. Okay, now, before, and I want to show you what, if you, uh, if you, go to my business card what's going to come up but before i do let me just say this okay um now when i said that um when i said that we gave a co uh, the three of us gave a presentation at uh the conference in houston Remember, Nigeria is, well, right now with the time change, I guess seven hours difference. So that meant, <laughs> excuse me, that Isaac had to, uh, he had to be available at a rough time for him. Now, Bruce Callow, he, uh, he's, he organizes um, Zoom meetings involving NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab. And Isaac would attend from Nigeria. So in other words, these Zoom meetings pretty much came on at 6 p.m. our time. 
So for Isaac, you're talking 1 a.m., 2 a.m. in the morning, but he was right there, okay? That's how much he wants to, we call it the curtain, where you have individuals like Isaac and Ada and Hedy Lamar, right? That are trying to get on the other side of that curtain. They're trying to get to their dream, right? But they're invisible. They're invisible to the organizations like NASA and all these engineering companies and other technical companies, right? Thank you, Bruce. Everybody, Bruce Callow just typed in a comment. Everybody, please, if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, punch in any questions you have, okay? Comments, anything. It's fully functional. Thank you so much, Bruce. Thank you. Oh, so cool. Uh, so again, outreach is about helping these types of individuals pull that curtain back and become visible, right? Look at, look at Isaac's energy. Look at his fervor. Huh? What company would not benefit from having such an individual as part of their staff? Okay? And companies, they need to be made aware of individuals like NASA. So that's another reason why I enjoy doing space education and outreach, okay? I mean, seriously. Okay, so now Bruce Callow just asked, why is Pluto not a planet? And he put a ha, 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 ha behind it. Okay, now I may have mentioned this in season one, but the 6,000-year-old culture known as the Sumerians that lived in the uh, area of Mesopotamia, which is now southern Iraq, once their uh, cuneiform tablets were translated by one of the few people capable of doing such, um, it said in these tablets that there's another planet that belongs to our solar system. And the Sumerians called that planet Niburo, N-I-B-U-R-U. And according to the Sumerians, this planet takes 3,600 years to orbit the sun. So just like the Earth takes one year, it takes the burrow 3,600 years. So um, one year on the burrow is 3,600 years on Earth. So, hey, if you're living on the burrow, whoa, one Earth year is not much to you, right? I mean, like a second or a minute or I don't, hey, whoa, right? Because and, and, and what I'm thinking of is just that life forms on a particular planet, their life uh, system, their life calendar is geared to the orbit of that planet. So what I'm saying is that if for us on Earth, a year 
is 30 is 365 days right but on the borough uh a year is 3600 years on earth so basically i'm saying a naburian a five-year-old naburian right has basically lived the equivalent of 3600 times five on earth if they were on earth so yeah they're they're hey they'd pretty much be immortal wouldn't they by our standards if one year for them is 3600 years for us whoa so anyway uh the sumerians said that um whenever a burrow comes into the solar system it would it would wreck it would wreak havoc so on one particular trip into the solar system Nibiru passed close to Saturn and its gravitational pull pulled the furthest moon of Saturn out, took it from Pluto and actually placed it into its own orbit around the sun. So the Sumerians on the 6,000 year old clay tablets translated by one of the few people capable in the world of translating Sumerian, they said that the burrow comes into the solar system, grabs the, the furthest moon of Saturn, pulls it away from Saturn, and puts it in its own orbit around the sun. And guess what that moon became? Pluto. And the interesting thing, everybody, is that of all the planets in the solar system, which all orbit the sun in the elliptical plane, Pluto is the only one that orbits outside the elliptical plane at a 17 degree angle so it's different anyway and it has a reverse spin i would say that that's reason enough to believe that something different happened with pluto so it, it's kind of interesting to me that here you have a six thousand year old explanation of why pluto is no longer considered a planet now it never was a planet according to the Sumerians, it was the outermost moon of Saturn that got pulled away from Saturn by Nibiru on its trip into the solar system and put in its own orbit around the sun. So when it became a big deal that Pluto had got demoted from a Pluto to a whatever, I got a kick out of that because I said, oh, maybe you ought to talk to the Sumerians. I mean, they, they kind of said the same thing 6,000 years ago. And I know I've said this before, but it's hard for me to imagine some Sumerian astronomer 6,000 years ago writing on a clay tablet, oh, I'm gonna say that the burrow came along and pulled the moon of Saturn away and it became another planet. And I mean, why would you have any motivation to even say something like that? I, it's very hard to make that up, very hard. And um, so I think it, uh, Samaria is considered the oldest civilization on earth. So you would kind of think maybe they have a pretty good idea of what things, what jumped off way back when. Right? It's, like, it's like somebody being at the scene uh, of an accident. Now, I don't, want it, I don't want it to be a bad accident, just a fender bender, right? Uh, but whoever arrived on the scene at first would pretty have would have the best idea of what actually happened right so the sumerians being the oldest civilization on earth 
6,000 plus years old, they got a pretty good idea of what might have jumped off. So for them to say what they did about why Pluto is not a planet, hey, don't discount that at all. Just like don't discount the Baruka knowledge of how they use the spheres to uh, keep track of the movements of the sun and the moon and to be able to predict a lunar eclipse. Do not discount that whatsoever, huh? I think we all know ancient peoples, they knew a whole lot that we don't know. Okay, uh, so now, um, thank you for that question, Bruce. And uh, so what I wanna do now is, um, okay, we don't have a lot of time left. I was gonna uh, take you on a tour of my uh, my business card. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. We, we got time, okay. So, um, if you click on, or if you scan that QR code that's in the bottom of my business card, and I know it sounds corny, but if I could give everybody out there personally my business card, I certainly would. I would, I would be thrilled to, to hand it to you in person. But next best thing, if you scan on the QR code in the lower right-hand corner of my card, or if you type in right there, LeroyLarry.com. Thank you, Ray. This, oh, so now we're gonna, we're gonna go to a share screen because I wanna show you what you'll see, okay? So I'm gonna click share screen, click this, Okay. Okay. All right. So, Ray, please let me know if everybody can see that. Most excellent. Okay, everybody. So, this is just so cool. I would recommend to anybody listening and viewing, hook up Ray. I mean, this electronic business card is unreal and it's dynamic. You can add to it, right? It's ever changing. It's not static. It's just so cool. Okay. So when my, when you uh, type in LeroyLarry.com or scan that QR code, this is what you'll see. All right. And if you click on watch our TV show, that will bring up, you remember from season one, we have a, a one hour kind of documentary style summary of season one, which is subtitled in English and Spanish. And the purpose of that is as an educational resource, okay? And we actually uh, sent that to the Barucas so that they could look at that, the one that's subtitled in Spanish and, and get an idea of why we we're coming there, why we're visiting them why we want, we want to start a dialogue with them, okay? Uh, and also, in addition to those two one-hour documentary versions, you have the half-hour show, which is a real nice half-hour summary of, uh, you know what? Why don't I just click on it so I can show y'all? We got time. So let's, uh, I'll click on it, and I'm going to bring it up so you'll see what it looks like, okay? Okay, let's see. 
Okay, I haven't tried this, so it may not. Okay, here we go. So when it comes up, okay, there's going to be, uh, let me you hit play. Okay, now there's a, a, a pull-down menu. Okay, playlist. So there you see you have the, the two one-hour versions, one subtitled in English, Baruch Expedition, and one subtitled in Spanish, Ex Expedition Baruca, okay? And that's a it's a one-hour summary of season one. And then you have the half-hour show, which is a 30-minute summation, a summary of, of season one. You know, think about sitting down, sitting down with your family, half-hour show. And then there's a, a three-minute trailer. Okay. So that's what you get when you go to the Watch Our TV show. Now, this, remember the intro to season, uh, the intro to season two, episode two? Me and Tirza at the uh, Farm 6 archaeological site. And here's the full episode one of season two that you click on and it'll take you to it. Okay. And this will, I'm going to come back to the website. So if you keep scrolling down, this was our season two poster when we began season two on uh, September 22nd, fall equinox with the spheres. And then this was our poster for season one that began on Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, okay? And then if you keep scrolling, there's some articles that Bruce Callow and I did together for the uh, Costa Rica news media. Okay, that was the first one. And then we did another one. Okay, the first one for you listeners, it's called Leroy Davis Larry Jr. From Jupiter to Costa Rica and Beyond. And again, you can click on these and it'll take you to the article. And then you have the second one that we did together, which was pulling back the curtain to reach the stars from the hood to Jupiter. And there you can see Bruce, Isaac and myself. So the video that you watched of Isaac when he was uh, saying about participating in the uh, SEEC conference, that's what, that's what this was, okay? It was so much fun, it was great. And then we did a third article for Black History Month uh, of this year about never give up. Very prophetic words from what I'm gonna be talking about in a little bit, okay? Never give up. All right, and then another article was done on me at, in the La Republica, which is actually in Spanish, but you can get the English version. Okay, so let's go back to the website. So if you click on this, it takes you to my natural physics website, okay? In the interest of time, I'm not gonna go through this a lot, but you have the home page, okay, and at the bottom, you see where you can you can go to the podcast, okay? Consulting. Consulting contains the work that I did with the United Nations uh, Office for Outer Space Affairs. There's links that you can click on that will give you information about that, okay? And then I'm gonna jump over to uh, podcasts, coming back to research. Okay, podcasts contain, you can go to any episode 
of natural physics from season one and season two. Okay, you can go back and catch any of them. Okay, education. Okay, education. Uh, now, for you teachers out there, right here. Oh, by the way, my very first outreach experience before I even knew there was a word for it was to give a talk to gang affiliated uh, students in the Los Angeles area and to persuade them to not be afraid to take mathematics in school. This was in the, this actually helped me get into the jet propulsion lab. Okay. Me doing this presentation at the time I was uh, uh, working with gang affiliated students at this high school in Pasadena, California. I was actually sleeping in the school at night because I, I hadn't yet, when I first got out to California, I hadn't yet made enough money to get an apartment. So one of the janitors let me sleep in the school at night. And she just told me, just make sure nobody else knows. No teachers and certainly not any students. And eventually I was able to get an apartment. But uh, when I gave this talk at UCLA to these students, I was still sleeping at night in the high school. And, uh, and so after I gave this talk, uh, the, the, the woman who ran the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, Office for uh, Affirmative Action, she had asked me to give a presentation and to give it in a way to motivate these kids not to be afraid of math. And, and what I thought about, because I've always been interested in the science and technology of ancient cultures and civilizations, I thought, hey, I'll talk to them about the advanced mathematics that ancient cultures did, uh, such as the Egyptians and the Dogon. And the idea being, if your ancient, cult if your ancient uh, ancestors could do serious math, so can you. And, and I, I really um, wanted to get the point across to them that math is not anything to be afraid of. It's the language that science uses to try to understand the amazing phenomena in nature all around us. So what you're seeing here are the overhead, remember overhead projectors? That's how long ago this was, right? 1991, right? Here's the, um, uh, this is the program that shows me given the presentation and, uh, and the slides. The slides that I used, uh, they were overhead uh, projector slides. So, and again, I didn't know I was doing outreach, but I was. And, and luckily for me, it was a, a success. It earned me a summer job at the Jet Propulsion Lab, at the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. And then by the end of the summer, a full-time position became open on the Galileo Project to Jupiter. So I can say that outreach helped me get into the Jet Propulsion Laboratory without, without any doubt. Okay, and another thing I wanted to show, wow, I keep doing the wrong thing. Okay, another thing I wanted to show uh, you teachers is that all the presentations that I gave in Nigeria are available. You can download them here uh, and, uh, and also, uh, what I showed uh, a couple of episodes again, my Where is Space presentation to the teachers in Nigeria, 
and the question and answer session. So please um, uh, make yourself available to, I mean, these are, you can use any of these. And, and, uh, and here's the, the uh, material from the planetarium, okay? So yeah, just look around my website. Entertainment, entertainment has basically the half hour that we played uh, in the first episode of season one. Actually, it's a combination of, as I said, the two planetarium uh, presentations, okay? And uh, let's see, um, about me, okay, this gives my background, everybody, uh, my education background, the research I've done, uh, yes. And I wanna scroll down here. Uh, okay, this is a little inside joke. This is actually a picture from my birth certificate. <laughs> and, and the reason why I wanted to show it was because my name is Leroy, okay? But growing up where I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, in the community, there wasn't a lot, there was no Leroy's. There was a lot of Leroy's, L-E small r-o-y, Leroy. So when I would tell people, oh, my name is Leroy, they would say, oh, you know your name's not Leroy, it's Leroy. And I would say, no, it's Leroy. So, hey, there it is, my birth certificate. It is spelled Leroy. <laughs> okay, now, all right. Now, uh, and then we have, uh, oh, yeah, contact. So again, again, everybody, you can, you can send us questions anytime you want. Here's a map of where we're located in Escazú in proximity to San Jose. And um, okay, so now a matter of importance. I'm gonna go to research, okay. Okay, everybody. Now, every week you've heard it introduced my astrophysics research at SINESPA, Center for Space Research, which is located on the campus of the University of Costa Rica. Okay, now I mentioned that I had taught at two high schools uh, before going up to the university. Well, on a field trip at the end of the year, uh, actually I had heard that there was a planetarium here in Costa Rica and that it was located on the campus of the University of Costa Rica. So I thought it would be a very cool field trip for my students to take them to the planetarium. A lot of them had never been to the planetarium. A lot of them had never even been on the uh, campus of the University of Costa Rica. And, and so another teacher, he, decided to take his class as well. And, and so, uh, uh, so we went up to the university campus. He had taken classes at, uh, UC, at the University of Costa Rica campus before. So um, uh, he was very familiar with uh, the campus. Okay, so um, you remember the pictures of you, sorry, I took another drink of water. Do you remember the pictures 
of the sphere and uh, me standing next to the sphere. Okay, so as we go to the as we go up to the campus, he's showing us the different buildings, and we come across the physics building. Uh, the building that the, the physics department is in. And I say, oh, they have a physics department here at the University of Costa Rica because I had never been on the campus either. And I made a note of it and I, I told myself, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into this uh, when I get back home, kind of, you know, see what's going on with this physics department. Uh, so, and, and so, as, so then we leave and as we turn around, as we go around a, a corner, there's the sphere, everybody. Oh, I just, I caught my breath, right? I mean, just to come face to face with this magnificent, amazing, mysterious, enigmatic artifact from the distant past. And I immediately wanted to get a picture with it. And Tirza took that picture. So when, when you see that picture of me with the sphere, imagine that Tirza's taking the picture and all these students are standing behind here wondering why am I so excited? <laughs> I guess to them, it's just a sphere, it's just a rock, just a round rock, right? But anyway, that was on the field trip at the end of the school year that I came in contact with that sphere. Okay, so later I looked up the physics department and, and, as, and as I read through the catalog, I saw that they had a graduate program. And I said, whoa, oh, this is very cool. They have a graduate program. And, and as I read further, lo and behold, they have a PhD program. Oh, I was beside myself. Oh, no, actually, I got beside myself when I found out that they did astrophysics research. Oh my goodness. And that, and that they had an actual research department called the Center for Space Research, SINESPA. Oh, I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. Okay, so I looked up who the different faculty members were. Okay, this is, this is uh, 20, uh, 2015, everybody. No, 2014, actually. 2013. Yeah, yeah. See, I yeah, I kind of lose track so far so long ago, but this is 2013. So I looked to see what the different faculty members are, what kind of research they're doing, and and I send emails to the different faculty to say, hey, um, my background is physics. I have a master's degree with a specialty in uh, space physics and astrophysics. Uh, maybe I could somehow meet with you and maybe there'd be an opportunity for me to continue on my research towards a PhD. I get a reply from one of the uh, faculty members. I meet with him and what we decide to do is for me to give a presentation to all the faculty members of the physics department and also the researchers at the Center for Space Research. Let them know my background, the research I've done, for example, at Fermilab and at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory and at the, Mar and, and at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. 
when I was still a graduate student, okay? And that picture you saw of me uh, with my uh, computer bag, that was the day that I gave that presentation, okay? I don't remember how long it lasted, maybe about an hour, uh, but I showed them data that I had uh, collected and, and the uh, analyses that I had done, my research that I had done, again, at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, which is a high energy physics laboratory in the United States, the largest uh, uh, particle collider. The Large Hadron Collider in Europe is the biggest, but Fermilab is the biggest in the United States. I showed them the research that I had done there. I showed them the research that I had done at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center as a graduate student, where I, I helped develop an instrument that flew aboard the space shuttles that could help determine the effects of the Earth's magnetic field and um, uh, the uh, ionosphere on the space shuttle as it orbited the Earth. It was called the Differential Ion Flux Probe. I showed them the research I did there. And I showed them what I did as part of the Galileo Project mission to Jupiter at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. After my presentation, one of the faculty members approached me and said that he, he thought that my background matched with the research that he was doing. I was elated, okay? So, in order for me to be able to start doing research, I needed to teach. That's pretty much the, the protocol uh, for grad students, right? Uh, you, when you're a grad student, you have teaching assistantships and research assistantships. Um, teaching assistantships, you help the professor of the course uh, uh, grade reports and tests and whatnot. Uh, research assistantship is a little step up, right? You get to do research, <laughs> but they still want you to teach a little bit. <laughs> so thereby, it was arranged for me to start teaching physics at the University of Costa Rica. Um, and so uh, also during this time, I had the opportunity to give my presentations at the planetarium. I showed you those pictures. And my idea, everybody, was that, okay, planetariums, they give astronomy talks, all well and good. But I always thought that the research that was actually being done at the university, it would be interesting as well to the community, to the surrounding community, as long as you present it in an entertaining way, right? Uh, make it exciting. So when I gave my first presentation at the planetarium, natural physics, yeah, that was about natural physics. And again, the first episode season one is 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 pretty much that but when it came to giving my and, and because it was a success i got invited back to give my second presentation and this was a part of the planetarium's community education outreach program in astronomy so my idea was 
to talk about the research that I and my faculty research advisor were doing and to make it interesting, right? Make it exciting. And, and just real quickly, the research involved trying to uh, find out or get an idea of where cosmic rays come from. Cosmic rays are very highly energetic particles that reach Earth from outer space. And their exact origin has not yet been determined. Now, particle accelerators like Fermi, like at Fermilab and the Large Hadron Collider, they try to attain these same energies in the lab. But cosmic rays occur in nature, naturally, okay? They are moving at close to the speed of light. And you remember, nothing physical, according to Einstein, nothing physical can reach the speed of light. But these cosmic rays, which are highly energetic protons, electrons, um, they reach Earth with incredible speeds, 0 0.99 the speed of light. What is it in nature that could propel these particles up to such high speeds? We sure can't accomplish that here on Earth with the technology that we have so far. So a very good candidate for the source of cosmic rays are supernova remnants, stars that explode. And can you imagine the energy? Remember how I talked about um, in my talk to Nigeria, actually, in Nigeria, I talked about how fusion is going on in the middle of stars and when they explode, the amount of energy that's released and Einstein's equation of E is equal to, energy is equal to mass times the velocity of light squared. Okay, 110,000 kilometers, uh, actually, uh, speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. I don't remember what that is in kilometers. It might be 110,000 kilometers per second, but you get my point. So that's a huge number squared. And when you think about the amount of energy that is released when a supernova explodes, I mean, unreal levels of energy, right? Nothing that Earth could, nothing that ever could be attained here on Earth. So supernova remnants are a very good candidate. Now, gamma rays, if you remember, gamma rays are at the extreme end of our electromagnetic spectrum, right? Which consists of uh, radio waves, microwaves, infrared, the optical range, ultraviolet, X-rays, and gamma rays, right? So gamma rays are, as far as we know in nature, are the most powerful uh, form of energy. So uh, our research involved using the Fermi gamma ray telescope that orbits the Earth and looks at gamma ray radiation. Gamma rays are produced uh, when you have a supernova. So if the two can be linked, 
so basically my research, what I submitted to continue on to doing my research, I'm just going to scroll down here. I'm not going to read through it, but I had an introduction. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, and again, you can go on my website and read this. Okay. So, okay. Again, I just, I'll just scroll down through here and, and my proposal, see, there's some of my data. This is actual, this is actual data from the Fermi gamma ray space telescope. Okay. And, and we're trying to identify here, uh, before, uh, unknown, before unknown gamma ray sources that have not been detected yet. Okay. And again, all this is trying to, uh, trace back and find out where cosmic rays come from. Excuse me. So we were going to, excuse me, we were going to divide the galactic plane into segments and do analyses on each segment to identify hotspots, locations of gamma ray radiation. Okay. And then we were going to um, compare that to data that's already been collected and try to connect the points. Okay. I can go into more detail into this in another episode, but I just wanted to show you what I submitted uh, to enter the doctorate program at the University of Costa Rica for my PhD in astrophysics. So I'm just going to keep strolling, strolling. Yeah, I am kind of strolling, strolling and scrolling. <laughs> and that rhymes. Okay. So there's some more data. Okay. All right. Had a schedule all planned out, right, of how the data was going to be uh, collected. And uh, there was a requirement that you uh, study abroad so uh, for a certain period of time. So there's an observatory in Mexico that my faculty research advisor uh, did work at. And it was all set up for me to go there and uh, do my work abroad. Okay, and there you see the Fermi Large Area Telescope, Fermi Gamma Ray Spill. We were also going to use the X-ray Observatory, the Chandra, uh, Swift. Yeah, we were we were going to roll. I mean, and there's my references. Okay, all right. So again, uh, I had I had done one year of teaching two semesters, teaching in physics, teaching in English, teaching physics in English at the University of Costa Rica. I had given two presentations at the Planetarium of San Jose in English. By the way, evidently, I was the first to do that as well. Not only the first to teach physics in English, in the history of the University of Costa Rica, but the first to do a planetarium, two planetarium presentations in English. Okay. I had went to Nigeria. No, I hadn't went to Nigeria yet. Okay. All right. So after two semesters, my faculty advisor and I, we get a letter from the graduate program at the University of Costa Rica that says my application 
has been rejected. Now, you remember when I was telling you how excited I was to find out that the university had a graduate program in physics? And then how beside myself I was when I found out that they had a PhD program and that they actually had a person doing astrophysics research? Don't you think that I made triple, double, triple sure that as I read through the requirements that were asked for to get into the PhD program, don't you think I read and read and overread to make sure that I fulfilled those requirements? And what the requirements stated, everybody, was that a person has a master's degree in physics. Okay? A master's degree in physics from a reputable institution. That's what was required. There may have been some other things too, like, um, um, that was pretty, that was the main thing. And when I say other things, I'm thinking that you completed your program, you know, just kind of just things that kind of go along with <laughs> having a master's degree. Okay. And there's, a uh, there's an organization here in Costa Rica called Canarde, C-O-N-A-R-E, which basically when you're a, a foreigner, or your education is from a, a from outside Costa Rica, they go through your uh, stuff with a fine tooth comb to make sure you're legit. Okay, it requires giving them all kind of documentation, which for me consisted of the documentation, not not from Southern, my undergraduate, the historically black university in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but where I got my master's degree from, Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana, very prestigious university. I mean, it's been, it's been called the, the Ivy League School of the South, right? Right up there with Harvard, Princeton, all those schools. Okay, so they look at your, your materials to make sure that you really have a, a degree, okay? And by the way, this is a very expensive process. I mean, it, it, it costs money to have them to do this. Oh, they make their money. <laughs> Believe you me. Uh, I think it was about 100 going on $200. I'm not sure. I'd have to ask Tirza. So in my materials, now actually I'm going to come back to Canari. Okay. So they checked it off, said everything was cool. I do have a master's degree. So once that was done, which probably took, I don't know, maybe about a year, that's when I submitted this uh, research plan to the graduate school. Now, another thing I had done everybody during this period of time to make sure that all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed, I met with the chairman of the physics department. I met with the dean of the graduate school in science. 
on multiple occasions to make sure that I had the requirements to proceed on towards a doctorate degree, or at least to apply. I'm not going to waste my time, and I'm not going to waste the University of Costa Rica's time if I don't have the, the, the requirements from what I've read in the formal doctorate program catalog for the PhD program. My research faculty ad advisor, same thing. We both made triple sure that I was good to go. And so I submitted this along with my application. About, let's see, about from July, August, September, October, November, it took a half a year for them to respond to my application. I had, you know what? We're doing screen share here. Here's a little timeline, everybody. Okay. So on July 1st, 2015, I submitted my application along with the document you just saw. A couple of weeks later, I asked the director of the doctorate program, hey, I haven't heard anything. What's going on? From this person, I get, oh, it's undetermined, the status of your application. What I'm showing you, I'll get to this, everybody. So at the end of the year, I get the notification that my application has been rejected. My faculty research advisor was just as dumbfounded as I was. It's like being sucker punched, right? You don't even see it coming. I mean, everything was good to go, right? I'm participating in the community program, outreach program in astronomy. Our research is going great. The, the students are enjoying my class. Everything is hunky-dory. Can't believe I just used that phrase. Everything is rolling. And out of the blue comes this, okay? All right, so I had seven days to reply. Otherwise, no comeback, no playback, right? You don't reply within seven days, they toss your stuff. So my faculty research advisor uh, referred me to the university law school, thinking that there could be a law student who would be willing to take my, you know, to, to help me out. Luckily for me, there was. I met him. He wrote out my challenge in all the legalese, right? I could have never done it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beauty. It's a work of art. So I submitted that six days after I got the rejection letter, okay? Okay, now, here we go. Um, about two months, about seven months later, right, more than a half a year, I get a communication from the graduate school saying, okay, okay, yeah, well, we can see that you have your, your appeal, your challenge has certain points, has certain merits. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to take a look. Everybody, this was 2016, five 
years ago. Five years ago. And I didn't hear nothing, honey. Okay? Now, please excuse me if I get a little uh, animated because, you know, I'm going to keep myself mellow. But I just wonder if anybody else out there, any other uh, graduate students have experienced this. Okay? All right. So. And by this time, I started getting involved in uh, the United Nations outreach that I was doing. So I read that they were going to look into it more. And I said, OK, great. Right. I sure I'm sure not going to hold my breath. <laughs> now, when the unfortunate events happened in the United States last year in Minneapolis, and it spread, the movement spread like a wildfire across the United States, and then it crossed the ocean to Europe. You know, people were tired of putting up with, with that. And you know what I'm talking about. No more statues got dragged down off their pedestals, right? People were done. So I started thinking, whoa, you know what? I had all the requirements necessary to get into the PhD program, as stated in that catalog. I had all the requirements. Is there something else going on here that I don't know about? Is there some elements of discrimination going on? Because this is the reason, everybody, that they gave me for rejecting my admission into their PhD program. Now, they said that a master's degree needed to be done via a thesis, which means you did research to get your master's degree. Yeah, that's cool. It didn't say that in the catalog. Now, the master's degree that I got from Tulane University was by way of oral examination. And the reason for that is that at the time I was at Tulane, nobody on the faculty was doing space or astrophysics research. So I didn't have the opportunity to do a thesis research for my master's degree. I didn't have that opportunity. And in fact, before I got my master's degree in physics from Tulane, I actually went over to Rice University in Houston, Texas, because they had a space physics and astrophysics department. I actually went over there and took uh, space physics and astrophysics classes and then returned to Tulane to get my master's degree with a specialty in space physics and astrophysics. Okay, but again, I didn't have the opportunity to do research, so I, I, I had to do oral examination. And I tell you what, depending on your perspective, an oral examination is a whole lot harder to me than doing research. I mean, I, I do research standing on one leg with my arm tied behind my back. I mean, I love doing research. Oh, <laughs> give me some research. But to stand in front of three people and answer any question they asked you from quantum physics, electromagnetic physics, 
classical mechanics, thermodynamics, solid state, okay? That's not a walk in the park, okay? So that's how I got my master's degree. And in fact, the documentation that I turned into Canardi specifically stated that I got my master's degree via oral examination. From the jump, everybody, okay? Before I could even apply to the PhD program, I had to go through the Canari process. So everybody from the chairman of the physics department to the chairman of the graduate school to the director of the department, the, the director of the graduate school in science, everybody saw that I got my master's degree by way of oral examination. But did anybody step forward to my faculty research advisor or to me to tell us such that it needs to be by thesis? Nobody. All the meetings with the chairman of the physics department, all the meetings with the director of the graduate school in science, not once, not once, okay? Now, I do understand that, and we didn't know this at the time, myself or my faculty research advisor, we did not know that I was the first foreigner, I guess, to come here and want to enter the PhD program in astrophysics, possessing a master's degree from another institution. You know, I don't think Tulane University would sit very well with saying that uh, my master's degree from Tulane is not considered equal to a master's degree from the University of Costa Rica, huh? What do you think? Okay, so again, we did not know that I was the first. So this presents a new equation for the university, right? I can understand that. I can understand that. But to say that my master's degree is not the equivalent of a master's degree from the University of Costa Rica? No way. Whether it's from Tulane, Southern, any university, no way are you gonna tell me that my master's degree is not a master's degree in science. And in fact, okay, everybody, well, you know what? When, it, when I come back live, I will, you know, I will show you my degrees from Southern University and from Tulane University. And get this, everybody, so I was given a certificate, and I'll show you this too. I was given a certificate from the university that it recognized that I had a master's degree. But what I nor my faculty research advisor realized at the time was that it was saying that I'm getting, in here in Costa Rica, my master's degree in science, in physics, from Tulane University is going to be recognized as a professional degree, not a science degree, because I got it by way of oral examination instead of thesis research. Okay? 
Okay, are, are you hearing me here? And had I known that when I accepted that certificate, I would not have accepted it. I would have told him to keep it. In fact, anybody that might be listening from the University of Costa Rica, physics department, graduate school in science, graduate school, I will gladly give this certificate back. I don't want it. I have my master's degree from Tulane University in science, in physics, that allowed me to get into the NASA JPL, okay? So you keep your certificate. <laughs> okay, now, again, what I will not accept is that they're telling me that my master's degree in physics is not a master's degree by whatever standards they have. And I'm, I'm not accepting that. That's unacceptable to me. Totally unacceptable to me. And the thing is, everybody, okay, now, I understand an institution wanting to uh, encourage their students, right, in the country to come there and work on an advanced degree. Oh, help them out any way you can. But do you do that at the exclusion? Because, okay, this is what I'm gonna say. Okay, now, to get a master's degree in physics from the University of Costa Rica, you have to do a thesis. You have to do research. I don't think I read anywhere in the catalog that they even do oral examination. I don't know. It may have said that. I don't remember seeing it. Because again, when I looked in the catalog, I just looked at the PhD program. I, I, I was so excited. Okay, so if you require a master's thesis to get a master's degree in your program, and without even putting it in the catalog for the doctorate program, that a master's degree is expected to come with a thesis, which again, was nowhere, nowhere in the graduate catalog, then that would, to me, says that you pretty much expect everybody in your PhD program to come from your master's degree program, right? I mean, think about it. You don't even put that stipulation in the catalog for the doctorate degree, that your master's degree must come with a thesis. I think that says you expect everybody to, that goes into your doctorate program to come from your master's program. What's that? So you're not, you're not allowing other graduate students to come from other countries with a master's degree to go into your doctor's program. And in fact, guess what? One of the most ridiculous suggestions I got from the chairman of the physics department at that time, he had the audacity to tell me, okay, well, I guess the only thing you can do is go into our master's degree program. Everybody, do you see the ridiculousness and the insanity of wanting me who already has a master's degree from a prestigious university in the United States in physics to come here 
and go through their master's degree in physics. How insane is that? And you know what, everybody? Um, the two years that I spent at the university, I got to know the other graduate students. And there's nothing like hearing word of mouth, right, everybody? Nothing like it. I had more than one graduate student tell me that it was so hard to go through their master's program, so difficult. The, the university makes it so hard. And guess what? Now, this was 2016, 2014, 2015, 2016. Since that time, and it could have changed by now, there has only been one graduate student to get a PhD from the University of Costa Rica in physics. The planetarium, let's say, uh, in, let's see, in 20, excuse me, in 2015, it was 10 years old. So uh, I'm guessing the planetarium is about 16 years old now. Uh, the PhD program in astrophysics is very, you know, it's young. Again, I was the first. Uh, I don't know if there's been any since then to come here from elsewhere, but, uh, but get this, at that time, there was only one, since that time, there's been only one, all the graduate students I met in physics that had, that had gone through their master's degree program or actually were still trying to get through their master's program, only one individual has gotten a PhD. Very cool person. I met her. She's very cool. But what does that tell you? Okay, on the one hand, you want to encourage people to come and, 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 and go for a higher degree in, in physics, in astrophysics. But you make it so hard that nobody can do it. What's that about? What is that about? So again, I am adamant about seeing this all the way through. And you know what? Let me just read you again. Uh, I had, not that I had let it go. I mean, what's that song? Let it go, right, from Ice or Frozen. But last year, as I watched all the events around the world, and things started getting exposed, I, I revisited my experience with applying for to go into the doctorate program here. And I started thinking, hey, is there something funky going on, right? I need to root this out. So let me read this to you, everybody. Actually, the podcast listeners, Ray, you know I'm sorry for going overboard, but you know this is worth it. Okay, so again, everybody, remember, I submitted my legal challenge written for me by a University of Costa Rica law student five years ago to allow me to keep this open. Because, you know, I don't know any, any legalese. Okay. So, 2016, didn't hear nothing. Zero. So, last year, after four years, I decide to, to revisit this whole situation. So, this is what I sent to the graduate school, everybody. Challenge of set decision based on implications of discrimination 
due to race and or nationality. In view of what has begun in the United States and now spread around the globe, I am again challenging the decision made by the graduate school on my application for admission into the University of Costa Rica PhD program in astrophysics. In summary, I was denied admission to the PhD program by the graduate school on the grounds that the master's degree in science degree in physics that I received from Tulane University was not an academic degree, but a professional degree. This misclassification of my degree contradicts the classification of Tulane University, which indicates my degree as academic. Tulane University is a prestigious university and will be notified as is appropriate. Four years ago, I submitted my legal appeal, to which I received an affirmation that the points contained therein merited and as such necessitated further examination. I have yet to receive indication of such, which everybody, I just received last week. Okay, last week, 2021. In the below timeline are listed the final two communications I received from the graduate school as referenced above. And these two notifications are from 2016, everybody, five years ago, where they said it was gonna be looked into, okay? And then that, so that's the timeline I, I read from. Now, in conclusion, this is what I wrote, everybody. The documentation of my Master's of Science degree program submitted to Canarde during their evaluation process clearly indicated the classification of my degree as academic by Tulane University standards. As such, the misclassification of my degree and my resulting denial of admission must be of a discriminatory nature. On legal grounds, I request an investigation through legal channels to be carried out to determine if the process by which my application for admission was evaluated contained elements of a discriminatory nature as conducted by the graduate school, Canarde, the physics department, or the administration of the University of Costa Rica as a whole. Best regards, Leroy Davis Larry Jr. Okay, everybody, we're, we're coming up on three. I don't even wanna go to three, Ray, I'm so sorry. So we will continue this in the next episode, but let me just say that, what is it they say in criminal investigations? The accused have the right to face their accuser? Okay, whether the physics department, whether Canarde, whether the graduate school in science, I just visualize some old, antiquated Costa Rican sitting way deep in some office that has the audacity to make judgment on my master's degree and say that it is not equal to a master's degree from the University of Costa Rica. There is no way in the universe 
that my master's degree from Tulane University, which was built upon my bachelor's degree from an historically black university, Southern University, there's no way any Costa Rican is gonna tell me that my degree is not a master's degree in science and physics. So whoever that old antiquated Costa Rican is, is gonna have to face me face to face and tell me that my degree is not a master's degree in physics. Okay, on that note, uh, Ray, if I could come back, you know, without, oh, you know, I guess I need to uh, stop the screen share. Okay, let me go back. <laughs> okay, I knew I was gonna get carried away. So again, everybody, um, I don't enjoy going down the legal road. And, and actually, I asked multiple times to meet with whatever committee, whatever group it is who looks over your application process. I asked to meet with them from 2016 to 2020 and never got, never got the courtesy, the decency to respond until I get this email last week that says they still, and you know you wonder, oh yeah, you said you're gonna look into it further? Yeah, I wonder what that was about, right? So again, nobody is gonna hide behind some academia desk and make a decision on my application and my master's degree, and as hard as I had to work to get that degree, and my parents, we weren't rich, we were poor as you all get out. But they found a way to send me to, to, to college, right? And then I went on to my master's degree. So there's a lot wrapped up in my master's degree in science. So I issue this to the administration of the University of Costa Rica. You meet with me and you tell me face to face that my master's degree is not a master's degree in physics, in science. You meet with me. You have the courage to face me face to face. Don't hide behind your desk, okay? Don't hide behind your desk and your papers and your office. You come out and let me see who you are. Let me see who had the audacity to take my degree to dishonor my degree. You come to me face to face. So we'll go down the legal road. You will be hearing from my lawyer and we'll take this as far as it goes. We will take this as far as, as it goes. And as I said at the conclusion of the email that I sent within that seven day window to your recent communication that I hadn't gotten anything from you in five years, this matter is not closed. In fact, it's just starting. So you get ready for a ride, administration of Costa Rica. You get ready, because we're coming for you. Okay, everybody, on that note, I'm gonna sign out. Tune in next week, same fat time, same fat channel.